on the stage now I'm ready to rage now I feel like an animal stuck in a cage and I'm ready to break out Hey guys, Jimmy here. Welcome to another awesome episode of Mindset with Muscle. Now, before we get cracking with this special episode, which I've entitled Why Sally Has a Six Pack, just want to let you know that this is the last podcast release before I close my doors for my J8 Challenge. For those of you that don't know about the J8 Challenge, I have an eight-week transformation program starting on the 13th of May. And we've currently got about seven more days before we close our doors to the challenge and get cracking. So if you want to find out more and you want to potentially win yourself a three-day break to Barcelona for yourself plus one, which is going to be both the male and female transformation winner prize, then head on over to www.j8challenge.com. You can find out all details in the show notes. Without further ado, let's get into this podcast. Now, I went up to Scotland about a month ago and I caught up with Emma Story Gordon. Emma is a fantastic coach and she is one of my female coaches for my Train With Jay Ladies. And we got into a long conversation about Sally and her six pack. And the kind of context with this is Sally isn't real, but we all have that person who looks like they don't do much, looks like they eat lots of crap, but still manage to stay in amazing shape. So we're gonna be delving into five reasons why that may be. Enjoy. So Emma, welcome to Dundee. Thanks, say thank you for having me. <laughs> Well, no, thank you for having me. Now, I'm excited today because we're going to be running over lots of interesting things. And we've got a really exciting title for our first one, which is... Why does Sally have a six-pack and you don't? Why does Sally have a six-pack and I don't? And you've got five reasons? Five reasons. Now, before we get into these, Sally and her six-pack, do... Do ladies actually seek to get a six-pack? The ones that you speak to, is that their outcome-based goal, would you say, when it comes to going to the gym, is to have a six-pack? It's the thing is, it's the epitome of guys to have, yeah. to have a six-pack. But I've always said, it's not really, obviously, as we'll go into it, it's not the be- probably the best outcome-based goal for a female to have. And that's purely because of body fat levels. But from your experience with female clients, would you say you get many that says, Emma, I want a six pack. I would say surprisingly yes, but they also don't realise how and why people get to that level. And, and obviously we're going to get to that. And I would say probably you get it more than anyone else because, because you do have it. a and yeah. you do have a six pack. You have visible. But maybe abs. not now, but previously <laughs> yes. But your you know your abdominal region is more prominent than most ladies. Yeah. And. You know, we're going to go into that, but you'd probably say that's more genetics as a role than, and obviously the many years of training that you've done. Yeah, I mean, I, one of the things that I find funny when someone says it's genetics, so I'm going to go from both angles here. Like, partly it is because, well, I remember the first time I got photo shoot lean, and I put up a picture and I had, bit, like, fairly visible abs, and someone had commented, and it was like a, a thread of people saying this is obviously photoshopped because she still has fat arms and legs and women you know don't get abs if they've not if they're not leaning in other places savage yeah pretty savage but also like like i kind of found it funny and it is kind of true 
So most women will not get abs unless they're very lean in other places, whereas I think I just have quite a long torso. So there is a genetic element. You also have quite a long torso. So literally it's like exactly what you just said there is exactly something. I have a very long torso. The first place to get visible before any fat comes off my arms and legs is stomach. So when people notice my before and afters after 21 days, they're like, wow. Because most people visually focus on progress as the six pack. So when that is the first place for your body fat to go, it's the most visible, like, wow. And, yeah, and for most people, it's the last place. Exactly. But also it's like, it must be something to do with long torsos then. Yeah, I think it is something to do with like the length of your lever. But then on the other side, I will say that when someone says, oh, it must be genetics, they're normally looking at me training in the gym. And I'm like, where am I every day? Oh, training in the gym. Like, it's not, it's not genetics. And the typical or the, the common saying is like, genetics loads the gun, lifestyle pulls the trigger. And yeah, you maybe have a predisposition to, or like a nice body shape that would quite easily produce abs. And someone else might have longer legs than a shorter torso. Yeah. But again, their legs look better. You know, there's always pros and cons to each. Yeah. Um, but yeah, th there's definitely two parts to that. But we have five reasons. Yeah, and, and we've kind of gone over genetics. We'll finish. Yeah. We'll, we'll start and finish on genetics. But the first one, as as you mentioned, is energy expenditure. So, do you want to kind of elaborate a bit more on what you mean by energy expenditure? So, on a very simple term, I just mean they probably move more. So, your typical person who has a six pack, and this was me when I was very lean, personal trainer, moved all day, probably hit. 20,000 steps on average a day, was training clients all day. You know, I remember when I could just, I used to do 100 pull-ups a day, just in between clients, just to get it done, just because it was like a little challenge and I'd tick it off. Things like that, that you can't do in your day-to-day -day life if you're not working in a gym and you don't have those surroundings. So energy expenditure is a huge one because you're, you would have looked at my diet then and thought that you're actually eating quite a lot, how are you so lean? because I'm expending a lot and it's always that balance between the two and often yeah. people just look at the one side. Yeah, exactly. What are you eating to get there? Yeah. Oh, well, I eat like close to 2,000 calories. Oh, I must eat that to get there. No, because I burn close to, you know, yeah. probably double what you burn. Hence, I can eat more and still stay lean. That's something that a lot of people don't recognise. And I would say a lot of people get that confused because they, I see that people say, I'm very active. And it's usually because at the end of the day, they're very fatigued. Mm. And what I mean by that is that I see a lot of office workers who think that they move a lot because the thing, but the actual thing that moves a lot in the day is their brain. Mm. They are physically, or sorry, they're mentally exhausted from working so hard. And actually working hard has just this kind of same feeling as moving all day, which is like, I'm exhausted. And, and, and it's quite easy to go, oh, I work hard and then suddenly, you've had a really hard day on the laptop, you look at your watch or you look at your phone and you've only walked 4,000 steps. And, and yeah. it's getting that relationship between movement and obviously you think energy expenditure, as in that's gonna be how much you're fatigued from the end of the day. Mm. But the movement of that is completely different. Psychological. Or how busy you are. Oh, I'm so busy, so I must be quite an active person. And I think that's changed within the last sort of five years because really people have only had Fitbits I know they were around before, like pedometers have been around for years, but they've only become this popular. Three years, four yeah, years. Yeah, like I remember really getting my first recently. Fitbit. Um, and that, yeah, that was, I think it was last time I was back up here, so probably about four years ago. 
and it's only just started to get more and more popular with actual trainers saying to get your steps in because mm -hmm. that wasn't necessarily the cool thing to say as a trainer four years ago it was well, all I about sprints and it was all about effort yeah whereas now we're very kind of moved around to what can you do with the least amount of effort to get the maximal results and that's the whole point really in, in exercise and, and why Sally has a six-pack because she's doing things that aren't necessarily consciously difficult to do because they're habitual but anybody can do yeah. move more just be more aware of your movement and of course you've got well you wouldn't know before and I I remember before people were wearing Fitbits sort of asking people oh how active are you and you'd ask them on like a parkour questionnaire and they just sort of arbitrary like oh quite active because you don't want to say I'm not yeah. like you would never class yourself as sedentary but most people like are and I was like when I checked mine when I worked in a more office-based job and, and I read that it was like below 10,000 steps of sedentary. I was sedentary, but I would have never ticked that on a questionnaire because I'm like, oh, well, I go to the gym. And yeah. you think, oh, well, that, that means I'm active because I go to the gym. Yeah, because you think the less that you put there thing. is like, how, it's not how active are you, it's how lazy are you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what people assume it is. But now yeah. we've got Fitbits, you can. Actually, how many steps on average that. do you get? Yeah. Um, and I think now that we know the importance of NEAT or non exercise activity thermogenesis, um, it, it's so much easier to monitor that, whereas before maybe we knew that it was important, but we had no real way that we could monitor that all the time. And actually, if you'd asked someone before sort of Fitbits became popular to wear a pedometer all the time, they'd be like, it's a bit obsessive. This, this is a bit yeah. weird, like, why are you doing this? So it has become a lot easier to track and monitor that side of things. Which, so, you know, which you'd think it'd be you know, that, that obesity percentage would be going down because of that, but for mm. some reason it isn't. And obviously that's um, for another conversation, but we're obviously talking about Sally today. So number two, muscle mass. There we go. So I think that you, you hear two answers, or I see two answers on the internet. Muscle, mate, muscle weighs more than fat, yeah. and you burn more calories if you have more muscle. So I kind of want to... Um, kind of want to kind of close the door on one of them and, and open up the other one yeah. and, and muscle doesn't weigh more than fat at, at the end of the day I, my response to that is what weighs more 100 kilos of feathers or 100 kilos of iron and it's like good point because they, they weigh the same but the actual density of those when you look at the typical internet picture of a pound of muscle versus a pound of fat you can see the difference in size and that's mainly what they're trying to get at when they say muscle weighs more than fat so that in itself can be quite confusing when we say about scale weight when yeah. comparing somebody who has a lot of muscle versus somebody who has a lot of fat well like you're obese right on a bmi so there are those extremes and i think a lot of trainers and i can understand why use it to sort of try and get their clients away from just focusing on the scale so they say like it's okay because you're obviously losing um, fat, but you're gaining muscle at the same time, thus you can't see weight loss on the scales. Yeah. Which is a nice theory, and it, you know, building muscle will mask some fat loss, yeah. but as we know, like rate of fat loss is always gonna be faster yeah. than the rate you can build muscle. Well, they, you know, exactly, and what they say is that a beginner lifter can build up to a pound and a half of, of muscle per month. And when we're looking at, you know, realistically, 
you know, depending the average person, not the you know very overweight person, but we're realistically trying to get people to lose about a pound a week. So, if you are some looking, can be bad. Yeah. So, so like, you know, one and a half pounds off those four pounds. You know, it's two and a half pounds. Anything, bel- you know, above that, you can't use that word of oh well, you're building muscle at the same time because even if you're having the perfect amount of muscle building for a beginner, that's still not correct mm-hmm. and something that we spoke about with that though is if you do tell somebody that that might make them feel a little bit less stressed which actually might help them not worry too much about it and carry on yeah and it's those kind of things that are not really spoken about with nutrition and training and that's those little white lies which actually can be beneficial if it works and if it's not but then this is always the problem and yeah. you know it's it's very it's a very complex thing i've said it, this in the past with things that i've seen and it's like so many trainers are quick to jump the gun to say oh you shouldn't be doing that because but it's just like you you just come off the information that that person said you don't know the context yeah kind of like what you were saying yesterday about putting people on lower calories because you know that they're going to overeat or they're not that good at tracking. So you know if you give them 1,500 calories, it's going to be closer to 1,700, which is going to put them in a good deficit. If you gave them 1,700, they might eat closer to 1,900, not putting them in deficit. So it might seem like it's more restrictive or over-restrictive by some people's judgment, but given that you know the client and you know how they're going to respond, you're, you're aware of what's going on. So I think that it's always context specific. And I've definitely told clients to chill out about the scales because I think they're maybe building muscle or water retention might be masking um, fat loss on the scales. And it, it's definitely a good tool because what tends to happen is they're just not being patient enough. But if they think the diet's not working anymore, they're not gonna stick to it, yeah. which means they will never get results. However, if they just continued the way they are thinking, okay, I must be building muscle. They are, they are losing fat, that's just not shown on the scales yet, for numerous reasons, like a pound a week is such a small amount that really the scales aren't sensitive enough to measure that. Um, so trying to just chill them out and get them motivated to stay on track, this good tool to use for that. So what do you, I mean, another thing, you know, we said is that you know, muscle is more metabolically active. And I think a lot of people say, well, you know, if you have more muscle and it's this other kind of thing, which is a positive thing. If you have more muscle, you burn more calories. So lift more weights because you get to eat more. And that, that, that's what I do say to a lot of people because what it is basically doing is incentivizing people to do something that's really good for them so they can do something that they really want to do that might be actual detrimental for them to do. So it's kind of a good white lie to do. But I think from a kind of scientific point of view, what is the difference? I mean, how much more metabolically active is muscle compared to fat, essentially? Yeah, I think a lot of people use this one and because there's that grain of truth in it, that yes, if you have more muscle mass, you will have a slightly higher metabolic rate. However, it's much less than what people would like to expect, but most people don't put a number on that, which is why it's like a useful sort of white lie. But you'll also find that, you know, obviously lifting weights burns calories. So if they're lifting weights to build more muscle that then burns more calories, but they've also burnt more calories lifting the weights, it does tend to result in improved body composition. Yeah, and I think a big thing for me as well is um, hunger levels. So when I am in a really deep 
endurance-based training program for like charity events that I do, I'm never hungry because I'm burning so many calories. And it's kind of counterintuitive because I'm burning tens of thousands of calories a week and I just, I'm not hungry because I can eat whatever I like and it might be a psychological thing. But when I'm in resistance training and adhering to more of a stricter plan of action, I'm starving. And it's kind of like my association with when I lift weights, I'm more hungry. When I'm doing more cardio based, I, my appetite goes. And it could be just physiological and psychological, but it's always very, very interesting. Yeah, because you'd want the opposite almost. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But also from a body compositional point of view, I look better when I'm weightlifting than I am endurance, of course, because you know, I'm actually lifting weights. I'm probably a lot more adherent to my macros because the outcome-based goal is more looks than performance. And performance, it's not necessarily caring about how you look, it's more caring of how you perform. Mm -hmm. And that, all you really care about is getting calories down. And that's a huge problem that I see when I start seeing more people who are focused on performance versus people who are focused on you know, their aesthetics and how they look. It's a very different brain pattern, but also a very different way of eating because they look at food very, very differently. Um, from a psychological point of view as well. You know, an endurance athlete, food is fuel. Yeah. As long as it makes them better and faster and recover, that's all that matters, as opposed to aesthetics, where it's like, no, I want this food to make me look better. So I have more of a kind of a, a psychological response to that food, because it's like, if I eat this, will it make me feel better or make me look better? Or will I eat this, will it make me look worse? Yeah. And it's very weird when you shift between the two psychologies. Um, so just kind of a, a kind of an interesting one from interesting. myself. So we've covered muscle mass. Number three is the biggie. Yeah. So lifestyle. it's kind of like you put lifestyle stresses priorities. Yeah. Um, and all of those change for a lot of people throughout the year because you have different priorities at different time. You of course certainly have different stresses at different times, and of course you have different priorities at different times. And it's knowing when to shift and focus on those things. Yeah, and I think even throughout your life, really. And so when I was a face-to-face trainer and I was like burning a lot more calories and also my priority was I thought I needed to look the part and that was really high on my priority list. And I mean, you've competed and you know how really selfish that is, that you have to be quite single-minded and focused on that goal. And and I agree with it. If you're going to do it, do it right. But now you probably wouldn't do that because you have more of a family life, you've got other stresses, you've got other responsibilities, but also, more importantly, you've got other priorities. And I think that's something people don't see as a positive. So they'll look at Sally, who, let's say she was me five years ago, like doesn't have any real responsibilities, doesn't have a family to rely on them, like can just train as much as they want really, and no one is asking for their time. And they can be selfish, whereas let's say this woman who wants the six-pack has a family, has a busy job, is trying to build a career. She's got other priorities, but she doesn't realise that, in my opinion, she's actually, like, have, she has a richer life. Yeah. So she's got all these things. And actually, Sally's just maybe, like, at some stage will work towards that kind of lifestyle, but she'll likely not have a six-pack when she does that. Yeah. Or if she does, I would question her priorities. So, yeah, I mean, and it's always going to be different to a person. And the reason I say that is that my priorities was my physique, because it's very much my career before 
Eliza came along, my first daughter. And then the priority was looking after Anna and you know the baby and that. Hence why my priority went to that and completely shifted out of fitness and I gained 40, about 48 pounds. And then I had another shift where the thing that I'm actually doing to myself is actually not, you know, is a priority because if I want to watch this little girl walk down the aisle, I need to actually look after myself. So it was a kind of shift of going from very, very incredibly selfish to incredibly selfless, then getting a good balance of understanding in order to be more selfless, I need to be more selfish. And and I think that was the, the weird change between myself. So Sally with a six pack is gonna go through very different things and you don't know what those things are. That's the thing, because you don't know whether oh, her priority is very selfish because she cares about the way she, she looks or her priorities are very selfless because she has actually figured out that actually the thing that she does, and you know, we're, we're saying Sally, in order to get, we're not saying in order to be selfless, you need a six pack, but yeah. if, if Sally is that person who's naturally gifted genetically and naturally has that thing yeah, or had it before have. and she has a kid, etc., etc., that might be going, oh, actually getting back to that shape which I was very healthy in is actually more beneficial for other people because I'm going to be around a lot longer. Yeah, and that's something we see all the time, especially with mums, yeah. that they give so much and they spend all their time and energy on other people and they leave no time and energy for themselves. And we see that all the time in trauma ladies is that you, you feel like you're being selfless, giving all your time to your kids and things, but you're not looking after your own health. Yeah. And we always say you can't pour from an empty cup. And realistically, for most people, that will not mean having a six pack. That will mean prioritizing time in the gym, time being active, watching what you eat, being mindful, all these things that come together. And for some people, like you're saying, like genetically, they, they might have a six pack doing that. Yeah. Other people definitely won't. And I think as well, I mean, if we're looking, you know, we're very much doing inverting commas for Sally yeah. six pack because what we're really talking about is the desired outcome goal of an individual. And what we're really saying to ladies is find your own version of Sally six pack. And that is whatever it is that you look like or feel like that makes you more confident in what it is that you do. And that essentially is why we go like that because we're yeah. not telling people right. You need to be like Sally. We're trying to understand what the definition of that, that Sally six-pack is. And that, as we said, is just going to be totally different to everyone else. And that comes to basically getting that lifestyle, managing those stresses, and understanding that your priorities are going to change. But that outcome priority is health, happiness, and confidence. And what can sort of detract from that or reduce your motivation is that comparison to someone like Sally without looking at all the context around that. And you need to say this, because I always murder this when I say it, but you once said something about swapping your life. So if yeah. you're like envious of someone. Yeah, exactly. So um, if you are not completely happy to swap your entire life with somebody else, don't get envious of that person. And you see this for a lot of people who go, wow, that person's a millionaire, they're driving around in planes. And like, yeah, but he hasn't got a family, he hasn't got kids. And are you honestly telling me that you would swap your entire life and, and lose that? And well, even if he does have a family, he does have kids, and he does have all this, would you swap your family and your kids and your experiences for that? And the answer is always no. And 
I hadn't really thought about that until you said it a couple of weeks ago and it resonated so well with me that we do tend to, especially with social media, get envious of other people and look at other people's success and think, God, I, w like, I wish I had that. Yeah. Exactly. But then would you swap what you have for that? And the answer is no. And it's such a freeing concept to me that I wouldn't swap that, which, which in turn means actually I'm really happy with where I am because I wouldn't swap it to be with somewhere else. And, and I think that's that the kind of, I think I've said it before, it's that kind of stop and smell the flowers analogy where so many people are so focused on getting further ahead in life that they haven't stopped to go, just, just, just stop for a minute, look around, and now look, this is pretty cool. And I, whenever I'm in a new place, I'm always like that. Like we're in Dundee at the moment, and like I stop for ten minutes, and like, you know, and I envision what it would be like to live here, and you know, looking at all the things that I've seen today, and like this is a really nice place. Mm. And some people don't think about that; they think about the next thing and the next thing, and that kind of reflection and that gratitude of what you have can actually reduce those stresses down and, and chill you out a little bit. And I think so much now when it comes to health and fitness, and I love the way that it's going now, it's less about how you look and more about how you feel. Um, because, and someone said this amazing thing, transformation happens from the neck up, not the neck down. So if you get this right up here and you're feeling good, this naturally starts to get better because you relax more, you prioritize it more and then you understand it more and then you become healthier, happier, fitter and stronger. Exactly. And then that kind of brings us to number four, which is knowledge. And um, you know, that has probably certainly helped with myself is the knowledge of what it is that I'm doing because I have been doing this for 20 years and probably really doing it from a, you know, kind of a, a knowledge base of understanding for maybe I'd say five, probably five of those there, maybe even four that I actually can go and look at things from, you know, not a sunshine and rainbows and like magical point of view and more of a realistic, why is that working and look at the variables kind of view, which most people of course can't because as much as you know, something I say is, is knowing and not doing is the same as not knowing. And I think that's the biggest problem with knowledge because when I speak to a lot of clients, both male and female, one of the, the cringiest responses I know. And it's just like, yeah, okay, that's, that's not good because you've told me that you know the things I'm telling you that you need to do and you haven't done them yet. So we need to try and sort that out. Yeah. So. Why Sally has a six pack could be knowledge and understanding of what it is they're doing. Because this goes beyond that kind of accidental six pack because Sally is very, very active and more of a, actually I know what works for my body. I've been doing this a long time. I know that I enjoy that thing that gets that result and I eat these kind of ways in this kind of style that I can't put a, a name on it. I can't you know, tell you the secret and put it in a book but it's just the way that I do things. Mm. So that knowledge is different to every single person, but the more that you know, I say the more that you know, the better that you are. I love the quote, the more you know, the more that you know that you don't know. Yeah, that's definitely true. But the more that you know what works for you. Yeah, um, and you can take the other stance of this is that actually Sally might have very little knowledge and just because she's in brilliant shape actually doesn't mean that she knows what she's talking and about. I, I've said this before, it's like, if 
you had to be very intelligent to get the body of your dreams. Most, you know, you've only got to look in the gym at some bodybuilders to realize, look, you don't really need a high IQ in order to get an incredible shape. You just need passion and consistency. And Absolutely. If, and if you do something enough, you'll get a result from it. And you can do a lot of the wrong things, or maybe not even the wrong things, but get the same result in different ways. So yeah. I've done, you know, I thought carbs were bad. I've done low carb diets, got in brilliant shape. I've done high carb diets, got in brilliant shape. But we see it all the time in Train With Jay Ladies that when that clicks and they realize I have this flexibility that I can be on a low carb diet or a high carb diet, I can, and that's the other thing is that you can change between the two. So say let's, you normally eat a low carb diet purely because it's easier for you to do and you enjoy that style of eating, but then you go on holiday to Italy and you want to try a load of carbs. That doesn't mean you have to go completely off track because you know what matters and that means you've got that flexibility. And I, th I think the problem with that is that identity is highly associated with a certain way of doing things. Mm. So if you are a, if you're a vegan, you, are, you have certain values and principles that makes you that vegan. It's not necessarily about not eating meat, it's about what that stands for with you as an individual and the identity associated with it. So emotionally that's more connected and I feel that when you, as with anything, you know, I talk about the four levels of, uh, four levels of motivation for change and the top one for you to have sustainable results is identity. So if you identify yourself as a bodybuilder, guess what, you're always gonna be in great shape because you've, as you've associated of, of Jamie is a bodybuilder, therefore if he doesn't look like one, I've lost my identity. Now that can be benefits and disadvantages because that was a benefit to me to motivate me to be in shape five years ago. But it was also a disadvantage when I was 20 pounds overweight because I didn't feel like myself. However, this is the thing I'm seeing with nutrition all the time. It's not necessarily the knowledge, it's the identity attached to whatever that pattern of eating is. Yeah. And that can be a, both a good thing and a bad thing. A good thing if it's getting you sustainable results and it's not having a negative impact. And a bad thing if it's causing you to go to Italy and there's nothing around you to eat that falls in line with your identity and values. Yeah, it is an interesting one and there was, I can't remember who exactly it was, but there was a woman who ate mostly a plant-based diet and she was very big on Instagram. And actually she realized that it wasn't, it wasn't helping her health. Basically she was probably getting deficiencies, anemic, <clears throat> B12 deficiencies, etc. So she was going to introduce meat back into her diet, and she got hate mail for it. Yeah, there's a guy. People feel so strongly about that, and it. Yeah, so it. I think if you have attached your identity to a diet, it can be very hard to change. And I know that, say, I built a following being a vegan. If I suddenly was like, actually, I'm going to start eating meat, or even just eating dairy, you'd get a whole load of backlash from that. Yeah. So I think it. it now it's become quite hard if you have attached your identity to that and people want to put your identity on that or even in terms of ways of training like oh you train that way or you're a crossfitter or you're this and they want to label you so they understand like what you do yeah it's it's normal brain heuristics it's like you know one thing that you know, and that has an association with knowledge as heuristics is that when we see something we want to understand it straight away so we need to attach whatever that is to what it is. Alright, you sometimes mould yourself into what's expected of you as well. So when I was at school, my brother was dyslexic and for some reason I was like also got labelled as dyslexic even though I'm not. 
Yeah. But for years, they thought I was, and I went to these like spelling classes and stuff. And I remember the woman sort of saying, like, you'll never be good at spelling because you're dyslexic. And so I just didn't try. Yeah. But actually, they, you know, there's no reason I cannot be good at spelling. Yeah. But they sort of like nailed it into me that I wouldn't be and that there was really no point trying and that I should just accept that. Um, but we can we kind of talk about the knowledge with nutrition, but this is really important thing to talk about when it comes to knowledge and results. Because I see that, I, I've called this a, the fat brain basically, I've coined this phrase the fat brain, where somebody has identified themselves with a person who is overweight, therefore has the attributes of, per, of a person who can't succeed in that thing. And even though that they do get success with that, their fat brain doesn't change. Because in order to be overweight, you need to have a lot of defense mechanisms and coping strategies to deal with the negative outcomes of that. So if you are wheezing going up the stairs, you need to block off anything that your brain's saying is, you need to sort this out. Because that means that you need to take action and make a change. And you make a joke about it. Yeah. And you're the fat one in the group that's funny yeah and then you always identify yourself as that yeah so you don't see yourself ever changing and but then everybody else associates your identity around that thing and then when that identity changes and you're no longer that person that can be a very hard thing for you to understand and it's sometimes having the knowledge that you are a different person and throughout your life you you change and it only takes going back to like see your school friends or to do things that you realize how different sometimes you are but I've seen stories and examples in the past of somebody who has changed their life come back to a place and then gone from a very successful person to a very unsuccessful person because they hang reverted around back. they reverted back to their environment and that's where we say time and time again environment dictates performance so sometimes it's not necessarily having the right knowledge and the things around you, it's having the right influences and environment because that has a huge impact on Sally. Because if Sally is hanging around with people who are, you know, consciously aware of what they're eating, what, how much they're moving, you know, they're all checking out their Stravas and looking at their updates and comparing their steps, then that's, in a, most of the time, a very good environment to be in to get results. So it's that knowledge of knowledge, environment, and surroundings. And, and that's another great example where knowledge can sometimes be detrimental if you're in the wrong environment. Yeah, it's a brilliant point as well because it, like, who you hang around with is gonna be extremely important. And I think a lot of people might try and use that as an excuse, so, oh, I, I've got a really negative environment, like everyone in my office eats crap or they don't exercise, blah, blah, blah. But you create your environment. So yeah, at work, you've got that environment. You don't have to have that outside of work. Yeah. You can choose who you spend your time with. Yeah. And, and, and you know, that, that's an important, because I've got great examples of this. Um, if you have one negative person in a crowd of positive people, that can affect a crowd immensely. Mm. But if you have one positive person consistently, in not necessarily a negative crowd, that can have an impact. Now, my old job, we, it was very, you know, we, I worked abroad, so we were a very close-knit environment for three weeks. Now, when I started working there, everyone, we, had, we, we worked really hard. Start work at 8 a.m., finish at uh, 8.30 p.m. for 21 days straight. It's a very hard working environment. But what people would see me do is get to the gym at half five, train, 
shower and work, work 12, 13 hours, finish work, go and hit the gym, then finish. And it's kind of thing where people see what you do in your habits every single day and they're like, How, you know, I see Jamie, he's up before us, he's very, very aware and active in his job. So it, this exercise thing he's doing this early isn't affecting him, and is, there must be something in it. Within two weeks, I remember looking around the gym and all 20 people I was working with were in the gym too, doing some form of exercise. And I had a huge smile on my face because most of them was just seeing what it was that I was doing and it was like, I want some of that. So some, and then this is what I say to people, is like, you can't tell people what to do, you've just got to show people and lead by example. And from, from my perspective, it's like, I'm doing this for me not for anything else, and my environment isn't affecting what it is that I do because my identity and what it is that I'm doing is very strong and I know why I do those things. So it can have a positive impact in, not necessarily a negative environment, but you can create, you can be that person to create that change. You see it all the time though, like positivity is contagious and the same, like negativity can be as well. And I really want to know the stats on this because I can't remember, but there's a really cool stat on um, how likely you are to be obese depending on how many of your friends are overweight. And so even things that you wouldn't think have, you know, if you've got friends that are overweight, you're much more likely to be overweight yourself. And whether that's because of the actions you do. So you kind of said like, if your friend group is, oh, we go to the gym on a Saturday morning and then we go for brunch or, or we go for a walk or anything. Whereas the other one is, oh, we go out every weekend or weekend what's going to have a better effect on your body composition. Yeah, and it comes back to that yeah, knowledge, but also environment dictates that performance and outcome with what it is that you're looking to do. Moving on to number five, and that is genetics. It's okay for you, you've got good genetics. And I hear that all the time, yes, I've got good genetics. You know, I, I say to people all the time, I would love to tell you the story of when I was a, an overweight kid that suddenly transformed his life, but I'd be lying out my ass. As a hyperactive kid, I had a six pack at 13. I had good genetics, but it was because I was a very hyperactive and, and very active kid. Um, but genetics only get you so far, and it comes to that, that, that kind of cliche quote, hard work beats talent if talent doesn't work. Because even if you are talented, you still have to work hard at what it is that you do. But Absolutely, and you'll always see these people with good genetics working hard. Now you could say, and I think this is completely true, that you're sort of predisposed to that. So let's say I had a slight advantage when I was at school playing sport, like a slight genetic advantage. Then I become good at that. I enjoy exercise because I see that as success. I'm quite good at it. I'm, you know, I'm having fun doing it. Then I'll continue to do that into adulthood. Yeah. And that small genetic predisposition to being a little bit better or enjoying it a little bit more at that age translates into your whole life yeah but it's those compounded years of training of exercising of always being active that give you but that, that also comes back to that identity with it because we're talking about Sally with a six-pack but if you're known as Sally who's really good at maths at school you kind of want to prove to people you don't you know you mm. kind of like, oh, I'm good at maths so you naturally gravitate towards that and work harder at it very much where oh you know Sally's got a six-pack she's gifted kind of solidifies the fact that you need to be that Sally with a six-pack so although genetically you are gifted to have a long torso and a leaner body so it's visible 
you kind of compound the fact that you do the habits that show that you are Sally with a six pack. And obviously that has a, can have a negative thing because I've spoken in the past about um, this with someone I knew at school called Fat Dan, who happened to be extremely fat when he was older because he I, attached his identity to what people knew him as, which of course, obviously, you know, genetics don't necessarily play too much of a role in that. It's, it's lifestyle habits, etc., um, etc. Et but you know, genet genetics are kind of the helping hand, especially when it comes to you know, this is something that a lot of people don't don't and shouldn't care about, but they do care about in the community that I was in, and that was the natural bodybuilding community, because obviously a lot of people naturally want um, genetically good calves. And one of the things that I get asked all the time is, Jamie, what do you do for your calves? And I go, nothing. Like, as a sense of pride, as in, I don't train calves, I haven't trained calves for five years, maybe one or two reps. And, and what's even worse about that is I purposely don't train calves for that very reason, but I should really train them, um, but I don't really want to. <laughs> um, so genetics, you know, sometimes can be detrimental to the fact that you don't want to work hard on those things that you naturally find uh, easy. And the example that you gave with this before was Usain Bolt. You know, you talk about, you, you come from an athletic background and, you know, probably yeah. everyone could argue that Usain Bolt obviously worked bloody hard, but he was very, very talented and didn't have to work as hard as other individuals. Yeah, so famously, like, at the beginning of his career, he would win, like, world junior titles. So the best in the world as a junior wouldn't want to train, would always run away, skip reps. There's, like, a sort of famous story about him hiding before his world 100-meter final um, because he couldn't be bothered to warm up and he didn't want to be made to run around the track, which is, like, ridiculous when you see some people working so hard. Now, I'm, I'm sure t towards the end of his career and when he was a like more established athlete, he did train very hard. But my point was that I wouldn't want him as my coach, I'd want someone who'd really struggled as my coach yeah. because they know how hard it would be, they know how to teach that, they know the barriers that you're, you might be going over. Now it doesn't mean that you have to have done that. So for example, like you've never been overweight, it doesn't mean you're not a brilliant weight loss coach yeah. because you can be sympathetic to what people are going through, you know how hard things can be, yeah. and you've worked with so many people and have so much experience that you don't need it to be your own experience, you can yeah, learn and by I, others. From a, from a kind of a male point of view is that, uh, people argue is that you don't need to be an ex-footballer to be a good football manager, mm. just the same with that. But it kind of helps because, you know, if you are being coached, then you do need to look up to that person, and you kind of want to know that they experience the things that you have even though they don't need to that's quite a a comforting thing now I haven't you know battled with being overweight I have been you know, 40 odd pounds overweight so I kind of like get it because usually like I'm three weeks away from being in good shape and then suddenly when you're dieting for a month and you you are still you know not where you are usually that, that can have an impact. Well, it's that typical thing of someone will say, oh, you know, I wish I could be in good shape, but I really like food. And I'm like, right, yeah. literally everyone in the, that's kind of what makes us human. It's like the most evolutionary driven motive is to eat. Like yeah. we're so evolved to be driven to eat. And it's true that one of the reasons that genetics can predispose you to being overweight is that some people do have a higher drive to eat than others do. Yeah. 
and that's probably the, the biggest genetic trait that we see. And I think just to put that margin in perspective though, the, the most dominant gene that influences your weight is called the FTO gene. And if you've got one copy of a mutation on that, which influences your BMI to a higher degree, um, you'll be about 1.5 kilograms heavier. If you've got two copies of that mutation, so one from your mum and your dad, you'll be about three kilograms heavier. So it's definitely not the reason you're 20 kilograms overweight, but it may be a reason that you're more predisposed. And I just like using those numbers to put it in perspective that yes, it will be like about that much harder, but it's not impossible. Yeah, and exactly. It doesn't mean that the same rules don't apply. It just means that you might be hungrier and you might be less energetic when you reduce your calorie intake than someone else yeah. who might not have those same hunger levels. And, and so what if that person is genetically blessed? It doesn't mean that you can use that as an excuse. And I think that's the hardest thing for a lot of people because it's easy to say, oh, it's okay for you, you know, you're genetically gifted. And it's like, well, that doesn't really help you to you saying that. Mm. Um, and it's very much like, and I've said this a lot, is that life is like a game of poker. You know, just because you get dealt a shit hand doesn't mean that you can't win the game. It just comes down to strategy. And that person that is genetically gifted, of course, you've got to have a different strategy than them. You've got to work harder than them. But just don't use genetics as an excuse because it doesn't serve you, it doesn't help you. It might help you feel better initially, like in the next 10 minutes, but in the next month, the next two months, you can't keep using that if it keeps getting to you. So if yeah. it keeps getting to you, then do something about it. I think the misconception is that, let's say someone did exactly your behaviours and they ate exactly what you ate, so they moved as much and ate as much as you, all the exercise, etc. they would get different results. Yeah. That's not really true, or only to a very small amount, because really what's happening is that they move less and they eat more. Yeah. And it's funny because um, on, on YouTube, there's a lot of YouTube videos, is I ate like The Rock for a week. And it's, and it's amazing. Did you move like The Rock for a week? <laughs> uh, and, and, but they're obviously, that sounds like a great YouTube video and it's got millions of views. So it's obviously something that people want to see. What would happen if a person ate like The Rock for a week? And it's like, well, you are, uh, uh, but you're basically a, a reporter who's sedentary who's going to eat like a Probably six foot five. no muscle mass. He's going to eat like a six foot five Samoan who like is one of the hardest workers that I've ever seen that is on a movie set for 14 hours doing action scenes and then going to the gym, you know? And he, it's that kind of thing where a lot of people say cheat meals. They're like, oh, The Rock's cheat meals are great. They're like six to 8,000 calories. It's just like, it, yeah, exactly. And he can do that. He's fine because he's just been on a movie set and his probably expenditure on a daily basis is probably 5,000 calories. And I wouldn't even blink at the fact that that would be true. So a 6,000 calorie cheat meal, nah, you know, like that's not going to touch the size. But your 2,000 calorie, you know, allowance for your very sedentary lifestyle is probably kind of four days food for you. So it's probably best that you don't do a rocks, the rocks cheat meals. Which brings us on to like a really good point about if it fits your macros and that style of dieting and you'll see people putting on Instagram like I guess especially guys and then girls look at it so it might be you with a nice big burger and things saying oh I fit, I fit this into my calories like it's not even a cheat meal it's just absolutely fine because it's within my allowance 
and someone else will be like, oh, well, I want to, I'm going to go do that. Let's say, let's just use us as an example, like, I'm going to do that. That would literally be 90% of my calories for that day. So all I could have for dinner is like a cucumber, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. So <laughs> yeah. it, it really impacts my day. Whereas for you, that's just your lunch. Yeah. And you might have a slightly smaller dinner. So it's not that big an impact. You've got to remember where you're coming from and what your, what your energy balance is. Yeah, exactly. And I, I've said this before, with, uh, I've given them the example of a McDonald's muffin at uh, 500 calories. You know, if, you, if you've got a typical female who's on 1500, that's a third of your calories gone in a muffin. And, th and the worst thing is, is your appetite is probably no different to mine. So actually, you know, that probably curbs just as much my hunger as it does yours. However, from a percentage point of view, that's a third of your calories and probably only about 15% of mine. Yeah. And it's unlucky. And yeah, this is kind of thing when you talk about genetics and that, women, it's much harder to get in. Like if I said to you, Emma, here's three and a half thousand calories. And if you eat just maybe a couple of hundred calories less than that, you'll lose weight. You'd be skipping for you'd be, yeah. life. Would be complete. It'd be so much better, but it's not. Yeah. And life's not fair, and it's so much easier for guys because I've got three, at least three thousand calories to pay with a day, and still can lose weight. So. And I think it's harder, especially socially, because the, if we have a meal out, it's the same calories in the meal. But for me, that impacts my day massively, or my energy expenditure massively. What it doesn't as much for you. And if you're eating out quite often, or you're going on dates or whatever and it, a man can eat a meal and it not impact their day whereas a woman it's very hard to do that so I think if it fits your macros it's often portrayed as much more flexible than potentially it is yeah but it goes against what we're trying to say when it comes to um, you know, success with fat loss especially with, with ladies is strategy and the best strategy for ladies is food volume and satiety yeah. Whereas flexibility in your diet doesn't necessarily mean that you maximize that volume and satiety. It's more satiety of the things that you like the taste of, not satiety of the things that are gonna stop you from eating more. And that's the huge issue with a lot of things because carbs, macros, they're all different in the fact that, you know, things might actually, you know, hit the spot, but that's not always the best thing to do. Yeah, and even with like, quote unquote, healthy foods, people are saying how amazing olive oil is and you know it's great to include in your diet but for a woman like a good couple of tablespoons of olive oil that could be you know up to a third of your calorie intake for the day can you like really afford to spend it on that when there's no food volume in olive oil it's just basically pure fat yeah. so yeah i think there's a lot of things that you have to consider and more like it doesn't mean that you can't go out for meals it just means that you have to consider what impact that's going to have and yes you can even that out over the week but again that means you're going to have to eat less the next day if you want to still lose weight